From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The debate reignites over gun control laws after the attack at a grocery store in Boulder. From the president of the United States to state lawmakers. What makes me most angry is the fact that uh, the federal government hasn't stepped up and recognize the epidemic. Then how does COVID-19 spread in college dorms? We'll talk with a researcher about transmission and about how the urgency to share pandemic data sometimes outstrips peer review. Also today, spring is in the air. We answer your seasonal gardening questions. Plus, we'll add new songs to our pandemic escape playlist. This time, thanks to KRCC's Vicki Greger. People appreciate when they're, they're being uplifted. And there's so many bands who uh, commit themselves to that. Woke up this morning with the sun down, shining in. Hi, I'm Allison Sherry from CPR News. Every day, I aggressively seek out the most important criminal justice news in the state and deliver it to you with context. I'm thankful that you value responsible fact-based journalism that gives you insight on how Colorado's justice system works. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's happening in all parts of the state. Today, I'm asking you to make this reporting possible. Please donate at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. This has to be the moment when we get something done because we can't afford not to act as Americans and Coloradans are being killed. We can ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in this country once again. I'm just asking us to show an ounce of their courage by doing whatever we can to keep weapons of war out of our communities. Enough is enough. We're not going to back down on this. It's what politicians, Democratic politicians, say after each mass shooting. Something must change. Often nothing does, but occasionally laws are passed. After the most recent mass shooting in Boulder and Atlanta, we're going to look now at what concretely policymakers say that they want to do. With me are State House reporter Benta Berkland and our congressional reporter Caitlin Kim. Benta, let's start close to home. Democrats control the state legislature, and you're reporting there's talk of a bill to ban assault style weapons. Where does that stand? I learned yesterday that preliminary discussions are now underway. No legislation has been introduced yet, but some prominent Democrats say Colorado needs a ban on assault-style weapons across the state, especially if the federal government isn't going to act. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg represents the district where the shooting occurred. He says he doesn't think it's too soon to talk about an assault weapons ban, and he said he wants to pursue the most aggressive action possible. The real solution has to come from the federal government. A patchwork of laws is better than nothing. But clearly, if someone is intent on causing harm and we have strict regulations in Colorado, somebody can drive an hour and a half to Wyoming. So it's not a solution. The point is to not end gun violence tomorrow, but to prevent some of these tragedies from happening and making it so we can go longer than a week before the next tragedy. Colorado Democrats have passed a handful of new gun laws in the last decade, but it feels like this would be a whole different order of magnitude. It would. It's interesting because before yesterday, there was not really any public talk about this type of statewide ban. 
But lawmakers, especially representing constituents from the Boulder area, say there's been so much grief and calls to action. Some people are impatient for the state to do more as soon as possible. I was listening to a virtual town hall last night with members of Congress and local lawmakers, and there was definitely a sense of urgency coming from Democrats. Do we have any idea if Governor Polis supports the idea? NPR recently asked Polis about the political realities for passing an assault weapons ban locally, and Polis said he does look for a policy that could be national in scope. But he didn't explicitly say what he thought about state lawmakers possibly moving something forward. I think we can expect to hear a lot more from him if we get a proposed bill. Polis did say he thinks the biggest loophole right now is the lack of a national guaranteed background check. So he'd like to see that. Keep in mind, Colorado already has universal background checks. Caitlin, on Tuesday, President Biden also called for an assault weapons ban, in this case reinstating the federal law that expired more than 15 years ago. Does that idea have any chance at all at the federal level? Short answer, no. Um, President Biden did campaign on trying to get another nationwide assault weapons ban in place. And after the Boulder shooting, you know, he raised this point pretty forcefully, saying when he was senator, they got it done. But, you know, it was only a 10 year ban. The Senate of 1994 is not the Senate of 2021. You know, there aren't many senators left that serve with Biden or served back then. And with regards to Republicans who he'd need to get on board, you know, many, for the most part, are not moderates or even what I'd call, you know, policy oriented people who cross the aisle. Just as an example, all four new Republican senators um, elected this November supported the objection to the election certification. I will say Representative Joe Nagoose hopes the House can move quickly on an assault weapons ban. Senator John Hickenlooper said his side of Congress, you know, they'll eventually get to it. But I think Democratic Senator Chris Murphy was a bit more pragmatic. He said you can maybe get 50 votes, but not 60. And 60 is the magic number in the Senate. Congress is debating a couple of other gun bills, though, right? Catch us up on what's happening with those. Right. The House passed a universal background check bill and a bill to close the so-called Charleston loophole, which gets rid of the three-day to proceed to sale provision if a background check isn't completed by then. You know, the universal background check bill, H.R. 8, it only got a handful of GOP votes in the House. You know, we're not seeing much different in the Senate. Many Republicans have pushed back on this, saying it's overly broad or it puts too many restrictions on law-abiding citizens. This is what Democratic Congressman Jason Crow had to say to that argument. The mild inconvenience of a background check does not outweigh the lives of the people in our community, does not outweigh the right to feel safe and secure in your school. Uh, And, you know, whenever somebody says uh, that they don't want to go through a background check, I remind them, you know, my children don't want to go through lockdown drills either. You know, that said, even Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says he doesn't support the House bills. And going back to whether Biden can pull this off, you know, when he spearheaded the Obama administration's push push for universal background check bill um, after the Sandy Hook school shooting, it failed. And gun control measures have not passed Congress after, you know, Orlando, after Las Vegas, Parkland, Pittsburgh, El Paso. That said, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he'll bring it to the floor for a vote. He didn't say when. We know it won't be in the next two weeks because the Senate and House will be on recess. And Benta, before the shootings, or rather before the shooting in Boulder, 
Colorado lawmakers were already working on a couple of gun bills. What do those do? That's right. One proposal would require safe storage of firearms in many instances, and the other would require people to report lost and stolen guns. Both have passed their first chamber so far almost entirely on party line votes. Remember, Democrats are in charge of the legislature. Um, Another bill is in the works to require a waiting period after gun purchases. And Majority Leader Fenberg is considering a bill that would let local communities pass stricter gun laws than the state. Obviously, this debate is extremely partisan. Everything we've been talking about is being pushed by Democrats and, by and large, opposed by Republicans. What are each of you hearing from that side of the aisle? The biggest thing I'm hearing from opponents is that they believe bans are ineffective and end up punishing law-abiding citizens and violate the Constitution. Senate Republicans at the Colorado legislature say they plan to respond to the Boulder shooting by pushing for a massive investment in mental health services. I do think Democrats may get on board with that, too, but they would also likely want to see more mental health support and stricter gun laws. Other Republicans have discussed a spiritual and moral crisis in the country and in Colorado. They say this is not an issue the state can legislate its way out of. And, right. And Republicans in Congress um, have also said similar things. You know, the vast majority of gun owners are law abiding. You're punishing them by some of these uh, proposed laws and that several states and localities have pushed and passed gun control measures and it hasn't stopped mass shootings. You know, that said, Republicans in Congress are looking at gun control. They're just more focused on the policing side of gun control and trying to identify people who might commit violent crimes with guns sooner. How do electoral politics factor into this? Colorado recalled two state senators for helping pass gun control laws in 2013. Could lawmakers be risking similar backlash if they move forward now? Those recalls were unprecedented. The demographics have changed somewhat in Colorado since 2013. Democrats have made more gains. But something like an assault weapons ban would draw unbelievable support and also incredible backlash. One lawmaker I talked to noted that the gun policy debate touches on so many different emotions and beliefs. It's always been politically charged and divisive, but he says it's only gotten worse. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Avery. CPR's congressional reporter Caitlin Kim and public affairs reporter Benta Berkwind on the potential for state and federal action on gun control after the Boulder shooting. The attack in Boulder on Monday marks the third shooting in the Denver area in the last two decades in which 10 or more people died. Survivors say there's a cumulative effect of so many shootings. CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports. It was an all-too-familiar sight. Some of the state's top officials gathered together to remember victims of a mass shooting. This cannot be our new normal. Jonah Goose is a congressman from Boulder. We should be able to feel safe in our grocery stores, in our schools, in our movie theaters, and in our communities. More than three dozen people were killed between the Columbine High School massacre in 1999, the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012, and the Boulder King Super shooting this week. The area has seen other shootings at schools and other public places, too. 
Two died at Platte Canyon High School in 2006, five in Arvada and Colorado Springs in 2007, three at a Thornton Walmart in 2017. Those can all make it feel like mass shootings happen more often here. And a Denver Post analysis of shootings since Columbine says that's true. The Denver Metro had the third most mass shootings per capita. So what it does to the community is it shatters their comfort zone, you know, things that used to be inside of our comfort zone and no longer in there. John Nicoletti is a Lakewood-based police psychologist. He says Coloradans need to adapt to this new normal by doing things like thinking about where all the exits are in a building. It's kind of like skiing. Years ago, none of us wore helmets. Now everybody wears helmets. Survivors of past shootings have learned how to live with their trauma. Heather Martin was a senior at Columbine High School in 1999. She says therapy and other survivors have helped her over the years, although new shootings can feel like a setback. She's now a high school English teacher. I go to school and I feel unsafe for a couple weeks. Like, I have to, like, resettle in and refigure things out because I've been, like, triggered. Martin helps run a nonprofit called the Rebels Project that connects survivors of mass shootings across the world. Her organization will step in if and when Boulder survivors and family members ask. In the meantime, Martin's advice for anyone feeling traumatized right now. Don't minimize your trauma because you think someone else had it worse. Your trauma is yours and your experience is yours. Martin says that holds true for direct survivors of a shooting, people who saw the images on TV, and even people who've endured more than a year of a global pandemic. In short, she says, just about everyone. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. When the pandemic started last spring, colleges across the country had to ask tough questions about student housing. Should dorms remain open? Should students have roommates? When a student in communal housing does get COVID-19, What's the best way to contain the spread? Kristen Bjorkman is the COVID scientific director for the University of Colorado Boulder. She was involved in planning the university's COVID-19 response. She's been studying how their decision to allow students to live in dorms with roommates affected coronavirus transmission on campus. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. Based on data that you've been collecting since the summer, how often did roommates of CU Boulder students who tested positive for COVID-19 get infected as well? So surprisingly, the students um, who had roommates and got infected only transmitted to their roommate about 20% of the time. And you found that students who did infect their roommates had something in common. What was that? Right. So when we looked at what might have increased the risk of transmission, we found that the students who did transmit actually had about seven times higher viral load than those who did not. Did it surprise you that the rate of transmission seemed so low between students who had a roommate who got COVID-19 or 19 and only 20 percent of them contracted it from their roommate? That did surprise us. You know, they're living in very close quarters. They're sleeping in the same room. These are the types of things that you worry about, you know, in terms of close contact and risk of transmission. And obviously, you're studying a specific population, CU Boulder's campus. How does that fit into broader research on whether higher higher viral load, like you found students with the higher viral Mm -hmm. load transmitted more, how do you find that it's correlated with higher rates of transmission in other studies? Yes, so um, we're pleased to see that this work is supported by some emerging work of um, symptomatic people around the world. There are studies um, from other countries that also are indicating higher viral load is um, a driver of transmission. 
CU Boulder has quarantine pro- procedures, so students who are infected with coronavirus have temporarily their moved to a dedicated isolation residence hall. But sometimes there are lags between when a student is infected and when they start quarantining. Did you find that students seemed more likely to pass the virus to their roommate if they were delayed from isolating from them? We didn't find any difference um, in the risk of transmission if we compared how long students were with their roommate in that group that did transmit and that group that did not transmit. And that doesn't mean that the act of moving them didn't have an impact. It just means that everybody um, who was moved um, kind of had equal patterns of of, um, isolating. That's really interesting. It seems pretty counterintuitive. And like you're saying, everyone who was infected eventually was moved. So it's not to say that isolation wasn't important. But what does that tell you about transmission, that this was the case, that students were moved very quickly and students who were moved after a week or so after their infection seemed to transmit at about the same rate to their roommate? You know, that could really come down to what was their viral load, that, you know, this is consistent with um, studies just generally of households that say um, the risk of transmission within, a, you know, is about 20 percent. Um, but interestingly, there is a study that's looked at kind of breaking down who's in the household and what is the rate of transmission. And if you compare in a typical household spouses to non-spouses, there is a higher risk of transmission um, with spouse pairs. Um, And, you know, we don't know why um, in that particular study, but it could suggest that the fact that we did have this isolation protocol did um, perhaps prevent um, some some level of uh, additional transmission. Transmission. That's, that's interesting. The kind of study that you conducted, it's dependent on regular testing. Everyone on campus, even those without symptoms, had t- regular tests um, and there was robust contact tracing. So remind us the testing and contact tracing procedures CU Boulder had in place that provided the data for your study. That's right. So we really established this um, CU-centric integrated public health system before our students returned in the fall so we could support them. And because we were concerned about the risk of transmission uh, amongst roommates um, in our residence halls, we established this um, mandatory um, monitoring program or screening test for asymptomatic students because we knew that, you know, the majority of people who are infected with um, COVID-19 do not have symptoms, particularly young people. So they um, were required to test once a week. They gave a saliva sample and we analyzed that. Um, If they were found to have signs of the virus, they were referred to our on-campus public health clinic that did a diagnostic test. Um, And when that diagnostic test would come back positive, and they also served our, you know, anyone who was symptomatic, they would get um, connected with our contact tracing team which did a fantastic job of, you know, finding out who they had been in contact with recently, both before their infection to identify their potential exposure source and people that they could have transmitted to. Um, And at the same time, upon that diagnostic positive result, they would get temporarily moved into isolation housing to protect the community around them. And that is quite a bit of data that you're collecting. Obviously, the state and the country struggled to keep up with testing and contact tracing for the general public. How important are data sets at places like CU Boulder going to be as research on COVID-19 continues? I think they're really critical sources of information. Um, There's, you know, some other universities that have also um, implemented this type of uh, 
regular testing program. And, you know, one really valuable um, reason we should be looking at university data sets like this is the fact that we are looking at asymptomatic people who don't know that they're infected, but who are out engaging with their community. And we can learn so much about, um, um, you know, viral risk factors from looking at this group. And I imagine that there is also a lot to learn specifically for schools. It strikes me that you're in a strange position as a researcher. You helped plan the university's COVID-19 response. Now you're studying the results of the response. That's right. How has that overlap in roles been for you? Um, it's been it's been rewarding and challenging, I would say. Um, I am honored to have contributed. Um, it's also been a juggling act as everybody involved in this um, has been juggling. And so, yeah, in the background, we are continuing with this operation. So every night I continue to support um, our operation on campus. And every day I'm continuing to analyze our data and see what have we learned and, and what should we do going forward. And the results of your study, how do you see them affecting the ongoing COVID-19 response at CU Boulder and possibly other schools? Yes. Yeah, so one thing that we learned, given that the major um, exposure source was not students' roommates, but really was off-campus events, and that's supported by our contact tracing team, um, we've made um, a concerted effort to engage our off-campus students more in this testing program. We've, you know, established a mobile testing unit so we can bring it out into the neighborhoods and just in general have uh, a greater expectation that those students test um, so we can support them and we can support our community. Um, but on the, you know, on the other side, we continue to allow typical on-campus housing and we plan to do that in the fall as well. And then going back to what we were talking about with the data set and how important this data is, it's interesting that the paper you published, it's a preprint. That means it hasn't been peer reviewed by mm -hmm. other experts in the field yet. Is there anything else about the limitations of the study that people should keep in mind when they're reading it? I think about possibly the demographics at CU Boulder, knowing that it's a lot of young people there. Absolutely. So, yeah, it is a, a very defined population, though it is a large one. So that's an advantage. Um, but, you know, another thing to keep in mind is the data in this paper come from the fall semester. And so that is when we had the, the I guess we'd say, original strain of COVID-19 as the majority strain in the population. And while that is still our majority strain, we do have these new viral variants that are that are out there. Um, and, you know, some of them may have increased risk of transmission. We also, of course, in the fall did not have access to vaccination programs. Um, and in the fall, our incoming students were mostly naive to infection. And now, you know, in the spring semester, we have a lot of students who have um, sustained prior infection, but we also have the positive things about vaccinations increasing. So, um, you know, there are things to keep in mind as far as what we saw then, does it apply now? Some things do and some things we might need to learn more about. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon. It seems like that research on COVID-19 is advancing so rapidly that people without science backgrounds are being exposed to more research in real time, so to speak. Maybe they're reading preprints for the first time or having some whiplash from rapidly evolving health guidance. But now, um, how has it been for you as a researcher? What have your impressions been as people are trying to swim in this deluge of information? Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a surprise, uh, is in terms of how much 
the public has engaged with scientific literature. That's not you know, normally what we experience. Um, and, the, you know, the good side to that is we are able to connect more with, with the people that we, we want to support. Um, on the other hand, we're not used to um, a general population maybe looking at the primary scientific literature. Yeah. Um, and so we want to make sure that, that people get the best interpretation of information. Kristen, thank you so much. Thank you, Avery. Christian Bjorkman is a postdoctoral research associate and COVID scientific director at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's the lead author on a new study about COVID-19 transmission between residence hall roommates. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It was kind of a normal day. We're gearing up, getting my boots on, and then there was a very loud explosion. The trauma of an overseas deployment can cause PTSD, which can lead to addiction. But recovery is possible. I'm grateful I did not give up. All the joy that has come into my life, I would have missed it. One veteran's story on this week's episode of Back From Broken, wherever you get your podcasts. With support from CU Anschutz, Department of Psychiatry. It's spring, and with all that snow in the rearview mirror, we hope, gardens and greenery are calling. So it's time for our seasonal garden and landscape conversation. And for those of you living in apartments or who don't have yards, don't despair. We'll have some gardening ideas for you a bit later in the conversation. Fatima Imad of Denver's Frontline Farming and Mile High Farmers is here to answer questions sent in by you. Fatima, welcome. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Tomatoes are in many of our gardens. Cassie Tanner of Arvada has been successfully growing them for 15 years, but she sent a photo of some very sad tomatoes with huge, brown, rotten-looking spots covering one side of them. Let's listen. Last year, blossom rot ruined all of my tomatoes. How can I prevent blossom rot in the future? Fatima, how can she prevent blossom rot? Oh yeah, this is an all too common problem. I wanna start off though by acknowledging our Ute, Cheyenne, Arapaho people and the 48 contemporary tribal nations on land we are in Colorado. And with that, I'd love to answer that question because so many of us struggle with it. So I just wanna tell you, you are not alone. So what is blossom inra? It's kind of this water soaked spot at the blossom end of a tomato fruit is kind of how you'll see it. It's a very um, common garden problem. It's not a disease, it's a physiological disorder, and it's mainly caused by a calcium imbalance in the plant. It doesn't only occur in tomatoes, but you might see it on peppers, squash, cucumber, um, even melon. And it just has that distinct look on the bottom of your fruiting um, plant where it's just this ugly brown. Um, you can still eat the, pro the plant, the fruit. As I said, it's not a disease, it's physiological. And we get it a lot here because we start having calcium deficiencies with the extreme heat because of inconsistent watering, which prevents uptake of calcium um, for our plants. So one of the things you can do is really try to maintain regular watering. It's important to understand that tomatoes don't want daily consistent watering once they're established. As they're trying to establish themselves, you gotta keep watering them so they can get their roots in. But then I like to try to water my tomato plants about every deep three days with a super deep watering, 
Really important to never water your plants from the leaves. You want to water to the roots because leaves are where vectors for disease occur. Um, and then the other thing is just trying to give it extra calcium. And a very easy way to do that is grinding up your eggshells and spreading that around the roots of the plants. So it's not just about how much you're watering. It's also about consistency. Yeah. Besides blossom rot threatening our tomatoes, Twitter user Dreaming My Dreams asks, how to stop squirrels from eating our cucumbers and tomatoes? Does planting onion or garlic help? <laughs> what a good question. I know garden pests, squirrels in particular, many of us also deal with rabbits, but squirrels are a very difficult one because, you know, of course, with rabbits and things, you can create fencing around it, but squirrels have a way of jumping in there. What I particularly hate about things like squirrels and rabbits is they have this way of waiting until your fruit is just about ripe and then they just take a bite out of it. It's so rude. Um, so <laughs> squirrels are a difficult one. If you're living in an urban setting, there really isn't that much. What particularly attracts squirrels um, is trees um, surrounding your garden. So if you have a lot of trees, they're going to come, they're going to live there. And we got to try to find ways to love um, our other um, relatives, you know, animal relatives. So, um, you know, one good thing that you can do is certainly, I like to think of deterrence as things like babies wouldn't want to eat, but using things like peppers and garlic, um, you know, you could easily take some garlic and make a little spray and spray on the perimeter. That can work as a good deterrent. On our own gardens, we like to um, plant onions and garlic on our very far rows or outsides of things um, to first just use space. We don't have a lot of space in urban um, environments. And then two, to just get another, uh, you know, plant in, but also to act as a deterrent, not only for plant for animals, but also other insects and stuff. So my suggestion at best, what you can do one is accept that they're going to be around in urban environments. There isn't that much you can do. Um, and two, of course, if there's things like trees and things around, that's even going to um, create more um, habitat for them. And then three is um, go ahead and try spraying something so cheap, so easy. Make your own pepper spray or garlic spray and spray it around or plant things like alliums around your um, gardens. It reminds you of and Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I feel that pain. I hear it, um, and and it's a it's a really difficult problem. So keep trying. Don't give up. Don't let them beat. <laughs> Reminds me, a couple of years ago, my dad waged war with a squirrel that was eating his begonias. <laughs> he, he liked to uh, spray it with cayenne peppers. There's something to it. Um, <laughs> Anna Handel of Lakewood has a question about crop rotation. My understanding is that some things like tomatoes and sunflowers shouldn't be planted in the same spot after a year because they take too many nutrients out of a certain area. But what if I'm amending the soil? I am putting in compost. We make our own compost. We've got goats and chickens. Does it matter then or is there something I'm missing in terms of a nutrient that isn't being replenished by the compost? What do you think? Great question. Let me give a shout out to one of our black scientists, George Washington Carver, who really brought the concept of crop rotation um, into uh, 
the United States as a researcher, scientist, and a gardener. And um, yes, rotating your crops every year is important. It's not only because they take up the same nutrients in the ground. So to your compost question, good job. Whenever you take things from the soil, you should also try to minimally give something back to the soils, how I try to think about it. So always replenish your garden as you can. Um, use your waste to make compost. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not only about the nutrients they'll uptake, but the fact that certain kinds of plants and plant families will attract the same kinds of pathogens and pests. So if you go back and you plant in that area, you're already planting in a space where those kinds of pests might have already been attracted and are dormant. And you're gonna start off really rough with a lot of that pressed pressure already existing. So I think a lot of brassicas like kales, um, because they get like a lot of aphids and things like that. Planting back in that space is not good for them. Um, same with squash and squash beetles. So keep rotating. I think that your question is so interesting because actually people debate a lot, particularly about tomatoes. And there's some schools of thoughts that say, really, you can leave your tomatoes in the same soil for about three years. Um, it doesn't harm the soil. It can have some good benefits to them. Some people are emphatic that you should rotate. I don't always rotate my tomatoes because I build trellising for them and I try to keep them in for a couple of years. I think your question about sunflowers is really interesting because as we know, Sunflowers are often used for remediation. What a beautiful um, plant that can reach so deep down. So when we think of toxic soils, we'll often plant sunflower seeds and just let them grow there and pull all that lead and bad stuff in the soil out. Um, so certainly they suck a lot of nutrients in that way, but they're also very, you know, um, a great pollinator and plant. So. I usually don't really think too much about should I rotate my sunflowers? I throw my seeds in my back and let them grow wherever they'll grow. We have another question from Anna Hannell of Lakewood. Let's hear it. I'm wondering about raspberries. I'm doing an experiment this year. I usually clip them down in the fall to about six inches. And I keep getting fruit way late in the season, like September early October. And so I'm wondering if you are really supposed to clip them down or this year I'm leaving them just fully overgrown and seeing if they leaf out and fruit earlier. Would love any advice. Thanks. Oh, what a good question. I think from the nature of your call, I really want to guess that what you're dealing with is an ever-bearing kind of raspberry. So it's important with pruning um, any plant properly to understand the growth cycle. In case of raspberries, you know, the roots and crowns, the things on the bottom coming up from the soil, those are perennial. They come back every year. But the canes are usually biennial, meaning that they live for two years. So in the first year, they'll emerge as sort of this green cane and they'll form their fruiting buds. Um, if you have like that summer bearing variety, these will, but these will really flower in the following year. If you have an ever-bearing variety, like it sounds like, these buds at the tip of those canes will generally give you a small fall crop. And the buds lower on the cane will remain dormant until the next season, right? And so those are still going to bear in the next season. Um, and what you'll usually see as winter comes is that those canes start dropping their leaves and develop kind of a thin, 
brown bark. Um, so this is what I would suggest. In the fall, certainly resist the temptation to cut these drying canes um, that fruited in the summer. I personally don't cut my perennials like that in the fall. There's a lot of research that shows, especially with this kind of crazy winter weather that we have, that these canes can send carbohydrates to the crowns and roots really well into the early winter, helping that plant survive dormancy. And I found that to be really important with some crazy drops in temperatures for all kinds of perennials here. So you want to prune later in the winter. My suggestions um, would be to look for canes that don't look very strong um, and cut those down, leave ones that look stronger and always cut, cut, cut and prune where it's exceeding space you want, or it'll become really weedy, you should always prune or you're not gonna get enough sunlight to your other canes as well. And it'll just become a disaster. I've seen them grow <laughs> through sidewalks onto the other side. So certainly keep pruning and think about the fact that they should probably be bearing later in, that, um, in the summer for you. Good advice for avoiding disasters. We have received a couple of questions from folks like me who don't have backyards. Here's one. Hi, my name is Rachel and I live in Denver. I'm wondering if the master gardeners have any advice for people who live in apartments for growing herbs, veggies, or other plants on their balconies. She also wants to know about how to attract local pollinators. Yeah, what a good question. And bless you for wanting to do that. And you should have um, get to get in it as well as we're entering spring. So my advice is, first of all, think about what you want to eat right? Um, I think most people are thinking about, you know, more summer crops they want to plant, like tomatoes and peppers. And I would suggest plants like that. You know, um, I also think about what's of value for my money. If I was going to try to grow broccoli in a container plant, um, after all that work, later on, after months, I'm going to get one broccoli. And that's so inexpensive at the store. So think about the crops that, um, you know, can bring you benefit in terms of just economically and then things that you really want to taste and have um, because, you know, things like summer tomatoes are amazing and you can also interplant them with basil. You plant your tomatoes and you put basil around it on the bottom and that'll help give the basil some shade as it gets really hot. Um, the other thing you want to think about is how to position those plants on your balcony. All balconies aren't the same. Are you facing the shade? Are there sunny spots? So considering that, you want to, you know, put your really heat-loving things in the sun and then make sure to water a lot because we get that um, super intense heat. But don't overwater. So you got to, you got to, you know, check it. And as things get warmer, you might want to water more. But um, you got to be observant. Stick your finger in the soil every day. See if when you stick it in and you pull it back out, you still have kind of mud on your hands. Then that's a lot of water, you know. It's pretty obvious to know when it's really dry. And when your plants are hitting a wilting point and they're kind of drooping, definitely water. And sometimes I see on balconies that it gets so hot in midday that giving a little spritz can be good. I love that you asked what can I do for pollinators and thinking about, um, you know, our natural environment in that way. And, you know, pollinators are important because they can help pollinate your other fruit crops, um, let alone all the other, you know, plants and fruiting crops that people have across the city. So I would say let's do a double thing here and think about herbs um, that can be great pollinators. Uh, so I would say plant some lavender plant some cilantro and let it flower because once it gets hot, the cilantro is not going to grow 
um, plant some dill and let it flower, um, even basil flowering. Another important thing with your pollinators is to kind of go up to the flowers and squeeze them so that you're helping with that pollination process and bringing in the good insects that will move it around. So um, yeah, there's so many, mainly you want to use native plants also for pollinators, and there's so many you can look at, but I would say double up and try to get some herbs. And of course, as always, bring beauty to your um, balcony. So anything flowering in that way can be a good pollinator, but you don't want to do plants that are hybrids or double flowering varieties, just simple native plants um, and letting them flower is important. That is such good advice on how people can garden even from their apartment. Fatima, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Fatima Imad of Denver's Frontline Farming and Mile High Farmers answering your questions during our seasonal gardening conversation. DJs around the state are sharing music with us that's helped them and their audiences get through the pandemic. Today, our playlist comes from our colleague in Colorado Springs. The music of morphine on KRCC and good. Ahead of that, Death Valley Girls and Under the Spell of Joy from their CD of the same name. Hey, everybody. This is Vicki Greger. I'm also known as your friend and neighbor. I do the evening music show at KRCC. I've been doing music there in some incarnation across every time slot for the last 25 years. What I've been playing over this last year and certainly over these last months, and some of these are songs that I just would love anyway, no matter what. So I have got to start with the late, great Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. And one of the songs I've played a lot over these last months is from Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Rendition Was In. And from that record, basically the title track. Woke up this morning with the sundown shining appreciate when they're they're being uplifted and there's so many bands who uh, commit themselves to that one of the songs that's been an earworm I get to have my earworms though out loud that's what's so great about this I get to share them with everyone is a band named Django Django they make incredibly melodic uplifting music and they just happen to uh, do a, a new record called glowing in the dark can't see in front of me, drawing my memory up. It's just all about, we're going through a shared experience. Here's all the things we're pushing against that maybe we're struggling with. But ultimately, we're glowing in the dark. And the song lifts up with those lyrics and bounces around. And you can't help but smile and be taken away for a few minutes into a really happy space. Now 
It's been really great to put some volume on something from the Britpop era, something like Happy Mondays. But it does remind me of a very cool time period that was a whole different life. And those songs sounded so good. You know, that just reminds me of a time when people could go out and they could dance and they were getting together um, in, in all kinds of ways. Even though the music can be an escape from the pandemic, Vicky also pays tribute to the artists we lost to COVID-19. Well, listening to John Prine always was an incredible experience, you know, stories to get lost in. So yeah, it's really poignant to keep playing some John Prine and, and really listen to what he left us with. I mean, what a, what a great storyteller in that voice. She don't like her eggs all runny. She thinks crossing her legs is funny. She looks down her nose at money. She gets it on like the Easter bunny. She's my baby. I'm her honey. I'm never going to let her go. In spite of ourselves, which is like the ultimate wedding song, if you ask me, just talking about whether you're in a couple or a friendship, all the things that do and don't match up, it's a reminder that we're, this is a shared experience that we're going through, the sadness of it, the success stories of it, the idea that we're all going to have a future together, that a lot of us are setting our eyes there. That's where that kind of storytelling can just remind you it's a bunch of humans. We're all just trying to figure this stuff out. We're going to spike our noses right off of our faces. There won't be nothing but big old hearts dancing in our eyes. And Toots Hibbert, Toots and the Maytals. Um, Toots has been on my mind because that's, you know, talk about uplifting, you know, being able to look at, you know, life and political situations and what he came up through. Uh, but boy, talk about joyous music. You know, that was a flame I really felt go out. So every time I play Toots and the Maytals now, it's it's got a little bit different feel to it. I go to bed, but sleep won't come. Get up in the night. Time tough has, you know, kind of different meaning. You get the, the message from this man who uh, reminds you, time's tough. You know, interject whatever you need to. Time tough now because there's a plague, there's an epidemic that's taking a lot of lives. That's that version of time tough and got to be tough. When there's fear, 
I think there's something about the show or the music that's being played that anchors their evening, that anchors their day, that's even perhaps a respite. After making it all the way through their day, there's something that they can trust, unwind with perhaps. So those are the conversations I have the most. What's also been very poignant about, um, you know, over this last year into this year is I'm going to be leaving come the end of June. So I have a few more months left doing this radio show, this incredible show that has defined my adult life, or as adult as I was going to get. You know, I have two daughters and it's defined them growing up. So lots of changes there, but I'm in a place where there's something else waiting for me and I'm going to go off in that direction. So when I play music now, it's doubly poignant because I, I have a sense of these are my final statements, I guess, or I think in terms of, oh, these are the bands who are doing the songs that maybe I haven't even found out yet that are going to kind of define the, uh, the end of my playing music five nights a week. KRCC music host Vicki Greger. You can hear her weeknights from 8 to 11 on 91.5 in Colorado Springs. As DJs share tracks with us that have gotten them through the pandemic, we're adding them to a Spotify playlist. You can find it at CPR.org. Right now, also hear recommendations from Indy1023's Bruce Trujillo, from Kurt Neuswanger, a longtime Christian broadcaster on the Western Slope, and Laura Resendez from the Spanish radio station Tigre FM with signals in northern and southern Colorado. That's our show today, brought to you by our own band of 24-hour party people. Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. Special thanks to Shauna Lewis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.